Welcome, this is your host Anastasia Glova and you're listening to the April 12th episode of the Cato Daily Podcast. Leszek Balcerowicz, former president of the National Bank of Poland and Poland's former minister of finance, is famous for implementing a program of economic transformation in the post-Soviet Poland of the 1990s. The shock therapy pulled the country out of economic collapse and transformed it into a robust market economy. In his speech at the Cato Institute this week, Mr. Balcerowicz spoke about the economics and ethics of the welfare state. He's our guest today. In constructing their welfare systems, which model have the post-Soviet countries followed? Was, is it the one of continental Europe or the United States or the Nordic countries? There was no uniform model common to all post-communist economists, and the situation has differed. In one group of countries, the economy collapsed along with the inherited communist welfare state, and some of these countries have not tried to rebuild it. They would group Georgia, Armenia into this category. So these countries have nowadays spending to GDP ratio not higher than 20%, and they are growing fast. Not only because of the reduction of social spending, but also because they are catching up. Do they need to focus on constructing welfare systems in order to grow their economies? Is that even necessary? I think if they want to grow fast, they should rather look at the Asian tigers, which have a limited welfare state, but thanks to fast growth, they can have a more expanded private welfare state, and there's also a larger role for civil society to play. But in most post-socialist countries, the state has not collapsed, and this meant that the inherited socialist welfare state was inherited was preserved, and these countries face a challenge to reform it, how to streamline the spending at the same time, how to try to meet the challenges related to a transition to a market economy, meaning, for example, introduction of some form of unemployment benefits. And here the experience is mixed. There are some countries which during the last years, in my mind, have proved to be the leaders in such reforms, like Slovakia or Lithuania, I would place Hungary on the opposite side, because in Hungary, the fiscal spending has been growing and kept at very high level, and such countries, economies like Poland, Czech Republic, are somewhere in the middle. You were perhaps the major architect of reform. Why would you say that Poland, in particular, has been successful, while other countries have not quite followed suit? Well, if you look at the Baltics, they have been very successful. Even though the starting point was very difficult, they suffered the collapse of their trade links with the former Soviet Union and being small countries, they had to have a deep decline in the registered GDP. Coming to Poland, I think the strategy of moving fast on a broad front, I think it's the proper one, and we launched this strategy where it is proper. First, because the communist system cannot be reformed by small steps and on the narrow front. Second, hyperinflation, which originated at the end of communism in Poland and in most other post-communist countries, required a fast and energetic response. Third, after a breakthrough, which brings liberty to people, there's a short period, which I call the period of extraordinary politics, when it is easier than normal to introduce radical reforms. So it's a sort of a gift of history which should be used by launching some reforms. And when I was in charge of reforms in Poland during my first period of public office between September 89 and 91, 
I was trying to introduce as many reforms as possible. So there are both economic and political and psychological arguments for fast and broadly based reforms. How familiar would you say are Eastern Europeans with the concept of economic liberalism? Do they inherently resist markets? In the West, both Western Europe and the U.S., you've got various groups of people differing in their attitudes towards the free market, depending on your education, life philosophy, interests, etc., etc. Perhaps at least some people in the former communist countries understand better that central planning or state intervention is very, very bad because they have suffered because of that. On the other hand, some of these people may be used to a very protective state, which is so protective that it paralyzes their society and the economy. So you've got mixed tendencies. But in democracy, the job is to persuade as many people as possible to support reforms which bring prosperity. What accounts for the lagging reform in such countries like Hungary, for example? Is it a lack of commitment to real reform, or is there a role that corruption plays? I don't think Hungary is the most corrupt country. Certainly it is not. I can't explain fully the Hungarian experience, which has been very good until recently, but during the last couple of years, they've been fiscally very irresponsible. And this is true of both main parties, not only one party, but it appeared that they had evolved a structurally good party system, this is to say consisting of two main blocks. The problem is both parties, both party blocs, we're competing, we're trying to outcompete each other on fiscal irresponsibility. But I would add that their structural policy, including privatization, has been largely okay. Are there services that governments should rightly provide as public goods? For example, during your remarks, you spoke at length about the importance of education. Should the government play a part? No, I rather said that it's a fallacy to think that without so-called free education, there would be no education at all. Education, strictly speaking, is not a public good. It is a private good. It is to say it can be privately financed, and I don't see any justification, both economic and moral, to have a free higher education. Free higher education, meaning university education, because those who graduate from universities have better chances and more money. One should have a system of student loans, and when I was in the government for the second time, I introduced such a system. I think, I believe in a system where government is limited most of its classical function and gives much protection of property rights to defense policy, foreign policy, law and order, and is effective in these functions as to create a good framework, both for civil society's development and for the market forces. Just to conclude this podcast, do you have any policy recommendations regarding transition economies in particular as they go forward? Well, it's, it's easier to formulate recommendation at the level of economics. It is more difficult to have a magic formula at the level of political economy. At the level of economics, there's a massive research which shows that the more you go, the more you transform your institutions in the direction of a free market, limited state, the better for your economic growth. But also, health improves, economy becomes more environmental friendly, you have less growth of income inequality. This has been well documented. So the conclusion is simple, reform. Now, it's much more difficult to say what should be done in order to convince enough voters to support reforms. Because reforming a politics is not a science, it's rather an art. And only say that one should 
spent much more time and resources on communication, on communicating those economic and moral advantages of a limited state, which creates a good framework for economic activity and the civil society. This is, I think, the biggest challenge in democracies. Thank you, Mr. Valtzerovich, and thank you for listening. But before you go, be sure to take a look at Indar Goklani's new book, The Improving State of the World, over at the Cato Bookstore. After the Oscars went green, the Supreme Court declared carbon dioxide a pollutant, and the IPCC released its climate change report. It's a good time to read about why we're in fact living longer, healthier, more comfortable lives on a cleaner planet.